Uh, Rick Hoyt is a severely disabled young man. His cerebral palsy is so bad he can't talk, feed or dress himself. He can't walk, run or swim, yet Rick Hoyt has completed 958 endurance events, including many triathlons. He's completed 65 marathons, including six gruelling ultra-long-distance Hawaiian Ironman triathlons. How's that possible, you ask? Well, the answer is because his father, Dick, carried him. Uh, he towed him in an inflatable boat as he swam. Uh, he carried him through the transition areas. He pedalled him uh, through the cycle legs on a modified bicycle. He pushed him in a wheelchair for the running sections. And so Rick made it to the finish line a winner. Why? What would make a father do that for his son? After their first fun run together, Rick said to his father, Dad, when I'm running with you, I don't feel like I'm handicapped. Well, that was enough for Dick to do whatever he could to help his son experience that freedom to succeed. What a father, giving himself up in sacrifice for the one he loves carrying his helpless son all the way to the finish line. That's the image Romans 3 gives us of God. It's also the image Romans 3 gives us of ourselves. Whether we like to hear it or not, we're helpless, just as spiritually disabled as Rick Hoyt is physically disabled incapable of doing anything on our own, utterly helpless. We saw that last week. All the way from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20, there's one point. Everyone is guilty before God. Everyone deserves his wrath, his judgement. You can see Paul's summary of his argument at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Did you get the message? Every aspect of our character and actions is sinful. It continues all the way down to verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No exceptions, no excuses, no one deserves God's declaration of innocence or acceptance or forgiveness. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your intelligence. It doesn't matter your your standing in society. You may not like to hear that not a popular message out there in Australian society, is it? But when it comes to meeting God's standards, his perfect righteousness, being all that God made you to be, you are as disabled and incapable of getting there on your own as Rick Hoyt is of completing the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon on his own. What we need is a piggyback. We need a father to carry us, just like Dick Hoyt carried his son. And that's what God does. 
That's what our Father does for us. Have a look at verse 21. It is one of the biggest turning points in the Bible. Before that, no one righteous, not even one. Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Verse 21, but now. But now. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. We've got no chance of being declared righteous by ourselves but now God offers us righteousness. And then the rest of this paragraph describes how that works. That's what makes it, I reckon, the greatest paragraph in the Bible. The greatest paragraph in the Bible. So what actually is God's righteousness that he offers us? You may remember a couple of weeks ago, Romans 1.16, we talked about not being ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to save people. And then 1 verse 17 said, why are we not ashamed of it? Why does it save? For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Now our English version that most of you have says righteousness from God. But it actually just says righteousness of God or God's righteousness. For in the Gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Now that can be taken two ways. If you're revealing God's righteousness, it can be that the Gospel shows us something about God himself. It shows, the Gospel shows us that God is righteous. He is always faithful and trustworthy and just. He keeps his promises. He acts in a way that's always consistent with his character. In the Gospel we see that God is righteous. Secondly, it shows us, the Gospel shows us, the offer of righteousness that he makes us. The gift of right standing before him. The Gospel shows us how we can be innocent instead of guilty. The Gospel shows us how we can be acquitted instead of punished. How a relationship can be restored where there used to be anger. For in the Gospel we are made righteous even though nobody is righteous. And that same phrase is what's used here in chapter 3 verse 21 as well. But now God's righteousness has been made known. And once again, it's got those same two ideas, something about God and something about what he gives us. So, just to begin with, let's think about the offer he gives us, the gift he offers us. So, there at verse 22. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So what's the gift that's been offered? Well, it's to be justified, to be made right, to be declared innocent. It's not something we can earn, not something we can work for, not something we can save up for. 3.20 said, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. It's impossible to do it by observing the law. No one can keep it. The only way to receive a declaration of righteousness is as a gift. Which is what grace means there at the start of verse 24. We receive it in a 
it's completely undeserved. We can't buy it. But how does the gift come? How does the gift come? Well, verse 22 says the gift comes through faith in Jesus and then it says to all who believe. That means we trust the work of Jesus. Uh, The rest of the paragraph goes on to describe the work of Jesus. But there's another way to translate that first phrase, faith in Jesus, and that is the faithfulness of Jesus. Righteousness comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus to all who believe. And there's a lot of discussion about which is it, is it both? Righteousness comes to us through Jesus' perfect law-keeping, his obedience to the Father. It's just as grammatically correct, it's just as theologically correct to talk about that. And so what this verse means is that God's gift of righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus to all who have faith in it. To all who have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, we get righteousness. We'll come back to the faith that we have to respond with in a moment. We're not faithful. We don't keep the law, but there is one who is. Jesus did perfectly keep the law. When we were faithless, he was faithful. He does it on our behalf. We receive the righteousness that he earns. It's like the tax agent, Ron, who correctly fills in all those complicated tax forms for you and then gets you to sign your name at the bottom and then you get the refund. He does all the work, you get all the benefit. Or the investment consultant who buys shares and makes investments on your behalf with all the skill and the training and then you benefit from the dividends. The work of someone else and you benefit from their work. Righteousness comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus. But how does that work? How can God declare sinful people to be innocent? Well, have a look at verse 24. Those who believe are justified freely by his grace. To be justified means to be declared righteous. We don't notice the connection in English, but they're exactly the same word in Greek uh, as it was in chapter 3, verse 20, here in verse 24. To be justified means to be declared righteous. Same thing with the word righteousness. They all come from the same word family. Verse 20, no one can be declared righteous by their own law keeping, but what we couldn't do, Jesus did do. God declares us righteous even though we don't deserve it, freely. To be declared righteous, to be justified, that's taken from the law court. It's a legal term. It's a judge's ruling. Verse 24, judges always make a verdict on some basis of evidence. Uh, What's the basis for God's declaration of uh, of righteousness here? How is it earned? How is this declaration of righteousness earned? Well, God's innocent verdict for guilty people comes because of what Jesus does and it's described using the word redemption. Those who believe are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
to be declared righteous, to be justified, that comes from the law court. Well, redemption comes from the slave market. If someone's been forced into slavery because of their debts, someone else could come along and redeem them. They could pay off their debts and the slave would be freed. These uh, these days we don't have slavery but we do redeem our goods from a pawnbroker. You hand over your TV and you get some money to pay a bill and then when you've got the money you go back and you pay the money, plus more, and you get your TV back. You redeem your goods. So this verse is saying Jesus paid some sort of price so that we could be freed, so that we could be justified. Verse 25 tells us what that price was. God presented him, verse 25, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. A sacrifice of atonement, that's an idea that comes from the temple. And so within a couple of verses, uh, we've had the law court, we've had the slave market and now we've got the temple. A sacrifice of atonement was the sacrifice made to satisfy the anger of God, to pay the punishment for sin. Atonement is the process of making two separated parties at one, joining what was separated back together again. God's anger at our sin was satisfied, not by our death, but by Jesus' death in our place. That was the price he paid to redeem us, to buy us back. How can we make use of that? It's no good having a payment somewhere out there in the cloud that you can't access. How do you access that payment that's been made for you? It's a bit like the M5 motorway rebate. Most of you know that if you use the M5 that the government will refund your tolls on the M5. All you have to do is know about it and I think live in New South Wales. Maybe you don't even have to live in New South Wales. You've got to set up an account. You've got to send in your refund request every time a bill comes. There's no benefit to you unless you can actually access that rebate. And it's the same with the redemption that Jesus has paid for you. This gift of right standing, his sacrifice payment, it's, it's there for anyone to access. You have to know about it, but you've also got to apply for it. Well, how do you apply for this access, uh, this uh, benefit, this sacrifice payment? Well, we've already seen how that happens. We've already read about it. We have to trust the plan. We've got to trust the plan. Verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Again in verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The blood picks up this idea of a sacrifice. The blood of the animal that was sprinkled around to wash away sin. It's by trusting the sacrifice of Jesus that God declares us righteous. That God atones for our sin. Satisfies his own justice in the punishment of Jesus. And that's what we trust. We trust God's word. We trust that Jesus' blood does what it says it does, that it does satisfy his anger and washes away sin and removes guilt. 
And when we trust Jesus' blood, when we trust God's word, it means we, we don't try to add to what Jesus has done. Trusting Jesus means accepting that he's done it all. When Karen says, when we hop into bed, have you locked the back door? And I say yes. Trusting me means that she won't get up and check the door herself or tell me to go and check it again. Trusting me says she'll just leave. Trust my word. Trusting someone's work means not trying to add to it. Trusting Jesus means that we don't try to earn our way to God ourselves. It means, trusting Jesus means recognising that we're all Rick Hoyts. We're all disabled. We can't move on our own. Trusting means we sit back and let our Father push us all the way to the finish line. To do anything else is not to trust. Well, remember we, we began by talking about the two ways of understanding God's righteousness. The gift of right standing, of forgiveness he gives us, but the other way of thinking about God's righteousness is his character, his reliability, his trustworthiness, his justice. The next verses start talking about that aspect of God's character. So why did God do it the way he did? Why did he offer his own son as the redemption sacrifice? Why not just Forgive it. Why not just write it off? Writing it, why not just write off sin? Accounting firms do it all the time, don't they? Just write off that debt. I don't know what happens to it when you write it off. It just seems to disappear. But why couldn't God just write off sin? It would have been a whole lot easier. It would have been a whole lot less painful. Well, the answer comes in the next verse. Just read it with me. It'll, it'll blow your mind. Why did he do it this way? He did this to demonstrate his justice. Actually, it's righteousness. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or patience, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice, his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God caused Jesus to die, he sacrificed Jesus to demonstrate his justice, to demonstrate his righteousness. It's it's exactly the same word that we've seen above. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. God's nature is to be just, to acquit innocent people, to punish guilty people. God's character through the whole Old Testament is to be just. Proverbs 17.15 Acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. He doesn't acquit guilty people and doesn't condemn the innocent. Exodus 23.7 Have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. That's what God says. I won't acquit guilty people. And yet all the way through the Old Testament that's exactly what God does. He acquits guilty people. He forgives the sin of sinners. He counts their faith as righteousness. 
He accepts their obedient sacrifices and turns from judgement against them. He makes sinners into friends. He forgives their sin. That's not fair. That's not justice. And then when we come to the New Testament and we hear about this offer of forgiveness, of righteousness, of guilty people who are declared innocent and set free, well, that's not fair. Where's the justice in that? Where's the justice? That, that's the cry from victims of crime when judges set overly lenient sentences, when they toss out prosecution cases against guilty people on a technicality, where's the justice, we cry. And God could be accused of the same thing, just letting guilty people go. God can't do that. His nature is always justice, to always act rightly. Sin has been committed, there has to be punishment. And we see that justice, we see that righteousness on the cross. Now, the cross represents lots of things. It's a price that buys back. It's a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. But in verse 25 and 26, it's a demonstration. It's a drama. It's a skit. It's an advertisement. A demonstration of Righteousness. Old Testament sins were left unpunished. Imperfect animal sacrifices made do, marked time, delaying true justice. True justice until the time when the perfect, once for all, sacrifice would be made and pay for those Old Testament sins and pay for our sins today, and pay for every other sin you and I will ever commit in the future. Paid in full. No further payment required. A while ago I took my trailer to pick up a new washing machine for Leela. She'd already paid for it at the shop. I had to go to the warehouse. I didn't have many money which didn't matter because what I did have was her receipt and stamped across the receipt were these words, paid in full. No further payment required. That was all I needed. A demonstration of full payment. I contributed nothing. And so at the cross, God is demonstrated as the one who is just and the one who justifies the one who is righteous, as well as the one who declares sinners to be righteous. If he just declared us righteous, if he just wrote the debt off, that wouldn't be justice. If he was only just without the cross, then no one would be declared righteous. 100% of people would die. But because of Jesus' death, God is demonstrated as both righteous and the one who forgives, who who declares guilty people righteous. How incredible is that? Which brings us to the final question. So what? What's it all mean for you and me? Well, first and most obviously, it means we need to trust what Jesus has done. 
If we really are like Rick Hoyt, if we are helpless, spiritually disabled, incapable of travelling anywhere towards God on our own, then we have to trust the price paid that delivers us. We need to trust the sacrifice made on our behalf that pays the penalty. We need to trust God's word that he will declare us innocent with no case to answer. Have you done that? Have you understood this before? Maybe this is the first time you've understood that. Trust the work of Jesus. Recognise your sin. Confess it to God. Thank him for the work of his son, the payment of his son who gave up his own life to satisfy God's anger against you. And then commit yourself to living with Jesus as your king. Many of us have already done that. Well, let's thank God again for his righteousness, his trustworthiness, for the confidence his character gives us to live without guilt and shame and certainty, for for the demonstration that he gave of price paid, justice achieved, paid in full. Christians understand their sin and God's grace live with a confidence that no one else can have as they go through life. Christians who understand and trust can live and face death in a way that no one else can. So we continue to trust. We trusted once when we became Christians but we 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 wake up every morning and we, we choose to trust and we live with thankfulness. We live with that trust. We recognise that we're Rick Hoyts, that we have nothing, we're helpless, we need his help in everything. And that's going to be seen in how you pray. Here's a good diagnostic question. Are you living, trusting that God is doing everything and you're incapable of doing anything? Well, what's your prayer like? Trusting God to carry you means that we pray. Trying to do it yourself means that you're not trusting. How's your prayer? Well, another thing that it'll mean is that you shouldn't boast. If you recognise that you're disabled like Rick Hoyt, spiritually disabled like Rick Hoyt, then it means you won't boast. That's the second paragraph from verse 27. And that's where it sort of hit, hit the rubber hit the road for the, the Christians in Rome. Gentiles and Jews sitting side by side. The Jews thought they were better, thought they deserved special attention. But being declared righteous doesn't come from knowing the law. Nobody can actually do it. Nobody can keep it perfectly. Right standing is a gift. You can't boast about a gift. You haven't earned it. There's nothing special about people who receive a gift. The only special thing about a gift is something to do with a giver. So don't boast. If you're trusting, then you won't boast. Don't think you're better than non-Christians at work or in your family. Don't judge them. Don't look down your nose at them. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't set up little measuring sticks that flatter you when it comes to your Christian performance. 
That's not trusting Jesus either. It's trying to give him a helping hand. Instead, live to make the giver of your gift special. Humbly serve others. Live to make the giver of your gift special. Gratefully honour Jesus, trust him, proclaim him, live with him as your king before a world who needs him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing words. Uh, There is a depth to them that uh, we, we really can't do justice to. But we pray that you might write them on our hearts, uh, write them on our minds. Uh, May they drill down deep into the things we think about and say and do, our attitudes, our motivations. Uh, Lord, for any who don't know you this morning, we pray that you would give them the faith to believe these words, to know you, and that you would declare them as right, as forgiven, as your friends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.